0: Adam, you may um, if this gets loud have to adjust that but it should be okay well uh, Merry Christmas to everyone and um, we are uh, running on a skeleton crew this afternoon to say the least um, but I'm thankful that you're here uh, we have some family church family that are sick and some are traveling and some out of town and and uh, Adam and Stuart and I are throwing these things together and somehow we've managed to not catch everything on fire this afternoon. So we're very thankful for that. Um, We're continuing the sermon from last week on uh, persevering in wartime. And uh, this is going to be part two. So we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last Sunday and uh, finish up uh, today. Um, I don't know about you, but, but obviously in the the spirit of Christmas. There is such great joy and there's such great uh, excitement about that day, um, and yet you're. It, it's hard not to also run into those moments of uh, conflict and, and and despair and sadness and tragedy, and and it reminds us as believers in Jesus Christ that we are living in a world that's still. Um, is reverberating from the effects of sin uh, in this world and the effects of uh, of the influence of, of Satan and, um, and and it surrounds us. And as we as believers are being reminded, as Adam read from 1 Peter chapter 5, 8-9, that we have to um, be sober-minded and alert and ready because uh, the the conflict around us is a a clear reminder that we are in a spiritual battle and a spiritual war. Um, And so just to kind of review some of the things that we've been looking at from Nehemiah, and and that is to think about how Nehemiah teaches us to be prepared for that battle. And as we've looked at Nehemiah chapter 4 and chapter 6 last week, we'll be there again. Um, But we were reminded that the... The spiritual battle in nehemiah 's day is a great illustration and application for us today that, as Nehemiah and the Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, they were receiving opposition because of doing the work of god and i don 't know about you, but uh, you know there's a constant struggle as we are trying to be faithful as believers to do the work of the Lord. There is a constant struggle, whether you see it. Or not, there is a constant struggle in the forefront behind the scenes. Uh, it's a spiritual war where Satan uh, wants you to fail. He wants you to uh, falter. He wants to do anything to distract you, confuse you, um, sedate you into not doing what God has called you to do. And of course, that has myriads of applications, right? I'm a parent. Um, as a parent, I am constantly tempted to be unfaithful to the simple calling of leading my family well as a believer in Jesus Christ. Just a simple and yet profound and difficult challenge, and Satan is constantly distracting, constantly sedating me, as I think about it in my mind, from just the the, the lures of this world. And so I, I, I am ever vigilant to re- be reminded in my own heart and mind that Satan wants to keep me numb uh, to the relationship or the responsibility that I have to lead my family according to God's plan. And so what we did last week and what we will continue to do is try to identify some ways in which we might see the enemy, see his uh, attacks upon us, understand them, and these are a couple of the ones that, w- that we looked at. We looked at, first of all, how our enemy uh, mocks and discourages us. This is just a refresher. Um, If you fell asleep last week, this is a chance for you to catch up, Um, that he mocks and discourages us. Uh, We saw that the one way in in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 2, the one way in which the uh, the enemy Sambalat and Tobiah and others were trying to uh, disrupt the, uh, the building of the wall in Jerusalem, was they were mocking and discouraging the Jews, slandering them, making fun of their building efforts, saying that in verse 2, uh, he says that, um, it says, And he said in the presence of, of his brothers and of the armies of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Notice he names them feeble. They're weak Will you? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He adds his little flavor to it and says, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will he break down their stone wall? So can you can imagine in and in, in your own life where you are uh, trying to be faithful, you're trying to do what calls, uh, God calls you to do, and the enemy is shooting these flaming arrows of discouragement at you. Those flaming uh, arrows of discouragement are meant to tear down, not the walls themselves, but the builders that are building the walls. And that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to be defeated in the work so that you might not accomplish what God has for you. That's how he tries to disrupt and distract. And so we talked about us as the faithful, trusting God and being hopeful in the promises. I love chapter 4 verse 14, the, the rally cry for Nehemiah. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I love the call of Nehemiah to not only trust the power of God to see them through, but he says, fight the battle for your brothers and sisters. That this is a community effort. That we gather together and we rally together. Can you imagine a, a, two, a couple weeks ago I talked about how there were 41 sections of the wall in Jerus- Jerusalem to be rebuilt. We looked at that in chapter 3. And Nehemiah had so purposely and strategically planned this group to do this wall and this group to do this wall. And it, and it shows this list, which oftentimes bores us in Scripture. But for us, we kind of looked at it from the bird's eye view and said, uh, God had, had said, this is your section. Focus on just your section. Don't overlook your other, uh, look over to the side and to the right and to the left and say, oh, well, how are they doing over there? Or how are they doing? Focus on the task that you have before you. And the discouragement came where each one was, was, was tempted to be discouraged by these, these, these curses and these uh, discouraging words. But, but Nehemiah says, no, no, no. As a community, fight for each other. This is what the church does. We, I love the passage in Galatians that we bear each other's burdens. You're not in this alone, church. And Nehemiah says, not only do we trust in the power of God who is great and awesome, but fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters. You know what he does not say? Just fight for yourselves. Just take care of yourself. Just get yours and you'll be fine. No, he says, this is a community war. And we're going to fight for each other. And so, how do we respond to the discouragement and the mocking? We are trusting in God's power. We are hopeful. We also talked in in the sense of the enemy, how he uh, spews out hatred and violence, which flows from discouragement. But we looked at how they began in chapter 6 to insult Nehemiah, that they actually were plotting in chapter 6 to do him harm. That these enemies, Sambalit and Tobiah, were so enraged and angry at them that they now began to lure Nehemiah into a meeting to hurt him. And as as the church, again, we are called to to respond to that in faithful ways. That as Satan wants to bring about chaos and anger and violence in this world, the the, the church is called to be different than the world, to be people who seek peace. Not to live in chaos, but to live in order. Not to live in violence, but to live in peace and harmony and love with one another. And so Nehemiah's response is not retaliation. It's invocation or or, or a prayer of supplication for the people. Trusting in God and His justice. That is so foreign and contrary to a non-believer's heart. For you to see someone that you love hurt and violated and abused and, and taken advantage of. And, and how are we to respond as believers? Well, the non-believing world responds in the same way. With violence and abuse and conflict. And the church says, no, no, no. We don't retaliate. We trust in the, in the sovereignty of God. In his rule and reign over all things, therefore we trust in his justice. Romans chapter 12 is a famous one. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, how do we respond to our enemies? If your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So we respond trusting God, praying for our enemies. We see over and over again in chapters 4 and in chapter 6 that the response of Nehemiah and the Jews was to enter into prayer, trusting in God. In verse 4, he immediately, in the midst of uh, of being mocked in chapter 4, verse 4, Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out of your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So Nehemiah goes to trust in God's own justice his own judgments on the heads of these enemies and he simply prays for them now he prays for justice to fall upon them knowing that God will bring justice upon them but what he's not doing is he's not retaliating he's not gathering the armies he's not gathering the swords and he says he's not saying let's attack because they've harmed us. Let's attack because they've violated us or they've or they've confused us or or they've led us to disarray. No, he says let's trust in God's justice. So, the last two that we will focus on as both ways of the enemy and ways of the faithful tonight. Number 3, the way of the enemy. It's not only to mock and discourage. It's not only to spew hate and violence. But it's simply to stir up fear. Look in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. It says, and now I'll start in in verse 10. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much trouble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. If you circle these things in your Bible in verses 10 through 12, you can just mark on the side there, fear has set in. Because that's what's happened. They are repeating The discouragements of these people, they are now, Jews are traveling to tell them, just give up. It is a, they are engulfed in a fear-based response. And this is what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to be paralyzed by fear. We fear so much in our world today. fear sickness, we fear death, we fear instability, the loss of family, the fear of social acceptance. It's simply the fear of man instead of the fear of God. And it does paralyze us so much so that Satan cripples the work of the church that could otherwise be active and faithful and thriving. I want to bring something to your attention that you're uh, probably aware of, but um, you, you know that uh, in this last two years, you have seen a complete social change in the structure of our, of our country. You could probably make a better list than I did today, or this weekend as I was studying, but all the things that have shifted from public blank to at-home blank, like public shopping to at-home shopping, public grocery stores to at-home grocery stores, right? Just have it delivered. If you didn't get a Peloton for Christmas and you're considering a Peloton, it's because they've convinced you that exercising at home is better than exercising at the gym, At-home business and work, at-home fitness, at-home delivery, at-home social gatherings via Zoom uh, via Zoom, and other applications, and last but not least, at-home church. And folks, this is fear-induced, unhealthy applications of this sickness and disease. And, and I don't want to discount that. There are people that have been so sick and died but what's happening is a complete social shift, and the applications that are flowing for this are incredibly strange. And I want to I introduce you to one, because I, I know that a lot of you have probably never even heard of this or even considered it. But you spend probably some time on Facebook, and you noticed in the last month that Facebook changed its name to The Meta. Did you see that? The meta. Well, that stands for the metaverse. The metaverse is the future of our interactions as human beings. It's virtual reality in a virtual internet world where everything we do is by putting on headsets and gathering together and interacting where we shop and we meet and we converse and we date and we do all these things through Zero interaction with ourselves. And you know why? Because that's not safe anymore in their eyes. And you think this is scientific. They actually had a movie about this like eight or nine years ago. That's literally, it's like this prophetic movie that's like coming to fruition Matter of fact, you can go on YouTube today and see where churches now have started virtual services where you can put on your, your your new virtual headset that you get for Christmas and you never have to grace the doors of a physical building where there's COVID floating around because you can sit in that service with your little... Uh, pre-made created avatar whether you want purple skin or a mohawk or tattoos on your face and and you never have to go through the pain of that and you sit in a virtual seat next to another virtual person and you watch a screen of a preacher that you're never going to meet personally because he might have covid and you're going to live in this world out of fear that's where we're going and if you've never heard about this, or you've never seen it, I'll give you an example of just how this is playing out. There's a new show on Fox where it's not American Idol anymore, it's American Idol with an avatar. It's people that are like, I'm afraid of singing in front of people, so I'm going to create this avatar, and you're just going to see the avatar sing and hear the avatar's voice. That's just an example of it. Now, That's just a a simple application to say that, folks, we cannot live in fear if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be. Yes, we can take precautions. Yes, we can make wise decisions with our health. But we cannot seclude ourselves and live in such a world where we are not proclaiming the gospel among human, physical people Because God has created us to do such a thing. He has allowed the human race to survive throughout thousands of years. Facing sickness and facing disease. He has allowed the church to continue to thrive and survive. He does not want us to live in such a fear. And you'll see this all throughout scripture. Luke chapter 12. He even says and to his disciples who are, are constantly afraid of, of the fear of death, just a different fear of death, not the fear of death of a disease that will kill them, but of the fear of death of those who are going to persecute them and take their very lives for what they believe in. And he tells them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will tell you, or excuse me, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so I love Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah was not going to let the people live in fear. He gathers them together and he reminds them of the character and the power of Almighty God who is going to equip them and empower them to do above and beyond what they expect or even think that they can handle or accomplish in this world because it's his power working through them. He's the one that will fight for you, he tells them. And so this is his response. And in his response, he is teaching us as the way of the faithful to be alert and resist. To be alert and resist. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15 through 20. Now when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Here they are, resisting the discouragement, being faithful And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spear, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And when the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Now I love this because the weapons were never for an offensive attack. They are always for the defensive so that they could carry on the work, not being distracted from the actual fight, but continually faithfully building the wall with one hand doing the construction while the other hand is holding and being prepared for what might come. Man, what a challenge for the church. Because as the church, we can get sucked into the argument. We can get sucked into the spiritual fight and the spiritual battle that we are literally doing absolutely nothing to further the gospel, declare to the nations that Jesus saves because we are so interested in proving this point or that point that we have forgotten the calling that we've called to, to, I mean, think about it in this way. The alternative story would be all the workers stop what they're doing, they stand on the walls that they've built, and they begin arguing back and forth with all the opposition on the other side of the wall. They're arguing their points with Sambal and Tobiah about how strong they are and, and how great God is. And that's not wrong. But in doing so, they have ceased to actually do the work of God. And so we as a church... In 2022, most importantly, should be reminded that we are called to be alert and resist. This is what First Peter tells us. This is what we see in Nehemiah. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is an aspect of alertness. For your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. They are constantly engaged in the awareness that Satan wants to destroy them, that there's a constant spiritual battle on the forefront of their minds. And so they are, number one, they are alert. And and, and I, I think that is signified in the way in which the weapon in one hand and the construction tool in the other showed an alertness by Nehemiah and the Jews. They were ready. And there we as the church must be prepared, prepared for the spiritual battle in your workplace, prepared for the spiritual battle with your teenagers and your young children. I've told you the story before. I've had a friend years ago that didn't grow up in the church. She was saved by God's grace. And and she began to have her children come home from church and ask her questions about these stories in the Bible that she had no idea what they were because she didn't grow up in church. The idea of of Daniel and the lion's den was not even a, a story that she would have grown up hearing about Um, in in Sunday school. And so what did she do? She began to equip herself. And God, by His grace, gave her this hunger to know God's Word so that she might teach it to her children. It had never even been a, a thought that had crossed her mind. We have to be prepared. That alertness is preparation. And secondly, we have to not just be alert, but we must resist. We must be resistant. Resisting the attack is standing firm and faithfully continuing the work that God has set before us. This is the second command. Resisting is standing firm in your faith. That the the resisting of Satan that 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 must be uh, achieved by every believer, and that resisting is our obedience to the Word of God, and our faithfulness to what it teaches by the power of the Spirit of God. We deny the the efforts of the the name it and claim it of. Um, uh, Word of faith movement who dance around and, and rebuke Satan with their words. We don't believe that those are effective uh, means of, of anything other than entertainment. We would say that resisting uh, the, Satan and his schemes is being immersed in the Word of God. That's how we resist him. That's how Jesus resisted him in the wilderness quoting the Word of God to him. Therefore, the church then uses the sword of the Spirit to counteract and resist the, the spiritual attacks from Satan by memorizing the Word, declaring the Word over and over in our minds, and living our lives in obedience to the Word in our families in our own personal lives and in our church. And the reason that we can Resist Satan, that we can resist temptation, is that firmness in our faith, that firmness is the steadiness, that firmness is the, the immovable object that's not us, but that it's Jesus Christ. He is the reason that we are firm in our faith. He is the reason that we can overcome because he is the victor. He is the one that has achieved victory over Satan and sin. So our gospel renewal is our preaching of the gospel to ourselves, knowing what Jesus has accomplished, so that we might resist the spiritual battle, or resist the spiritual temptations of this world, firm in our faith. Now Peter writes this particularly for a great challenge that we might face one day, the persecution of the church. So we can apply this to the spiritual battles in our home and the spiritual battles of the world conflicting and and oppressing and, and, and being violent even against the church. The same applies. We resist firm in our faith knowing that the same kind of suffering that it's been experienced by your thro- brotherhood throughout the world. So the enemy stirs up fear. The church must be alert, be ready to resist. And this, the second way that the enemy leads his attack is through deception. Through deception. We see a lot of this deception and this lying in Nehemiah chapter 6. It really begins um, earlier on in Nehemiah chapter 2 and then in chapter 4. But the the brunt of this is in Nehemiah chapter 6, 5 through 14. We looked at this last week. If you want to look over in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 5. They've tried to lure uh, uh, Nehemiah to a meeting. Sending messengers over and over again. Nehemiah refuses. And then in verse 5 it says, "...in the same way, Sambalit for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets." To proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. Quote, there is a king in Judah, end quote. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. They're lying about Nehemiah. They're trying to discredit him. And the way they're trying to discredit him. Is the same old. Same old scheme of the devil to lie and deceive to create distrust among the people. He's saying, oh, Nehemiah, you just, you're just you building these walls because you're eventually going to try to take over and be the king. And not only do we understand this, but other people, the, the, the Arabians, they understand it. Geshem, the leader of the Arabians, he understands it as, as well. He's another witness of these things. So guess what? We're going to go tell the king about this. And by the way, we also know, Nehemiah, that you set up this false prophet to give some form of authority to this kingship that you are seeking in Judah. And we understand that person to be a false prophet. And everything that those people said were untrue. Matter of fact, the irony is, is that his enemies were actually the ones that set up a false prophet. To lie to Nehemiah. In verses 10 through 14. They send to Nehemiah. A false prophet from. It says he went into the house of Shemaiah. The son of Deliah. The son of uh, Mehethebol. Who was confined to his home. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So the enemies of God set up the false prophet. And the false prophet tells Nehemiah, they're going to come assassinate you. And the only safe place for you to go is inside the sanctuary in the temple. Now, Nehemiah is not an idiot. He knows that no layman is allowed to go in the temple according to the book of Exodus and the law of God. He knows that that would be a violation and a disobedience of the law of God. And he's not going to fall for this. But this is what the, the, this is what the enemy does. He, he tries to lure us into some anxiety and, and again into some fear. And so that we're confused and, and we don't think about what God has already commanded us much like Eve in the garden. We forget the commands of God and we begin to maybe uh, try to rationalize those commands and, well, did God really say this? But Nehemiah wasn't going to fall for it. But these are the deceptive plots that the enemy continually tries to attack us with. This is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle for truth. Well, what is truth? Steve Lawson defines truth as this, he says it's defined as that which conforms with fact or reality, it's genuineness, veracity or actuality, in a word truth is reality, it's how things actually are and theologically truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory and being of God. Truth is the self-disclosure of God Himself. It is, what is, uh, it is what it is because God declares it so and made it so. All truth must be defined in terms of God whose very nature is truth. So think about the conflict here. Think about the stark difference between Jesus Christ, who is truth, God and man, revealing to us the truth of God, showing us God in the flesh. He is what what we would say is the personification of truth. And then you have Satan, who is the father of lies. And this is the conflict that we are in in this world. Putting our allegiance, trusting in truth, or being deceived with the lies of Satan and the error of this world. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus tells the Pharisees, his great enemies, you are, the father, uh, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies." So we as a church must be alert to the lies that surround us. We must be aware that we are trying to be deceived over and over again and the the attack upon the church is most directly on the Word of God. They want you to doubt who Jesus is and what He has said And Satan will do whatever he can to twist that truth in in such a slight way that it slowly, like a dripping faucet, leads to eventual corruption and deterioration in all the gaskets and the functions that are underneath your sink. Satan wants to distort the word. He's not even trying to eliminate it. He just wants you to doubt it. He wants, you, he wants you to be confused about it. And we must be understanding of this scheme of His. And instead, we must therefore respond by declaring the truth, which the prerequisite is understanding it and knowing it, as we talked about earlier. Declaring the truth. And obeying it. Declaring the truth and obeying it. And this is where we see Nehemiah as an encouragement to us as the church, even in the beginning, in Nehemiah chapter 2, when the oppressors became from the beginning. Nehemiah stands in the face of the, the very uh, beginning uh, stages of their conflict with Sanballat and Tobiah in chapter 2, and he tells them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants who will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. There Nehemiah is, faithful to stand upon the truth of God. He's quick to confront the lies of his enemies. And he declares the truth of God by declaring the character of God. Again, if Satan is going to lie about God, then our greatest uh, advantage, uh, an offensive action for the church, is to be shored up in what we believe in. Therefore, we must fight against the schemes of the devil by being, uh, have a greater foundation of the Word of God in our lives. Understanding his character more deeply. We cannot get by in this world fighting a spiritual war with dull knives or blunted swords. We have to understand the deep wisdom and knowledge of God so that we can fight a war faithfully with longevity. And so Nehemiah was willing to declare the character of God. He says in verse 14 of chapter 4, we've looked at this verse earlier, do not be afraid of them. He tells them, remember the Lord who is what great and awesome. The character of God that He has revealed in the Word of God is the reason that they fight. So it's the role of God's people then to be the heralds of God's Word. And that we must herald that Word. We must proclaim that Word in both the church and in the world. This is how we declare the truth. We declare the Word first in the church. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So remember how I said that the, the, the war was a community war? Well, the soldiers fighting next to you need to be reminded and admonished of what the word of God says as they are conflicted. As they are wounded. As they are about to be wounded. Trust The Word of God and share it with others, admonishing them with all wisdom. And by the way, that's all of God's wisdom, not your wisdom. So we herald the Word of God in in the church, but then we also declare the Word of God in the world. We're heralds of the gospel of God into the world of darkness. We must stand as ambassadors of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ by declaring the truth that God's salvation is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. There is no other way. This is the story of Christmas. That Jesus Christ came to be the light in the dark world around us. And this Santa Claus figure that we celebrate and see all around us. He came from a real person, Saint Nicholas of Myra, who was a very, very much a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a bishop in a in a in an area in, in modern day Turkey called Myra. He was a proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel in a a most violent time in history during the reign of Diocletian. And he survived the persecution of the church. And if you know your history well, you know that that history shows us that St. Nicholas of Myra was actually one who stood firm upon the truth of God's word when the, when the theology of Jesus Christ was being attacked from outside and from within. If you've heard of the great council of Nicaea, you know that there was a, a man named Arius who was attacking the very nature of Jesus Christ and was, was teaching false information about the, uh, what we call Christology or the, the truth of who Jesus is as both eternal Son of God and Son of Man. And history says that St. Nicholas of Myra there at, the, um, at this council in Nicaea standing for the truth of who Jesus is, uh, loses himself for a moment, stands up in the middle of this, uh, this this formal meeting, walks over and punches Arius the heretic in the face. So much so that literally the church, he puts him in, in church discipline. He loses his post as bishop, until he is repentant and and broken over this act of rage and anger. That's the Santa Claus that I think about at Christmas time. One that's going to stand for the truth of God's word. Maybe not violently, love's a little over the top, although kind of funny. But one who is willing to say, this is not who Jesus Christ has revealed in the Scriptures. Standing and declaring the truth that God has revealed himself to be. And so this is what Nehemiah does. He stands for truth. He declares it. In chapter 6, as his character is being attacked. As these lies are being stated about him. In verses 8 and 9. He puts a stop to it. He says in verse 8, he says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things that you have said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This is where we are in the world where we as the church must take our stand knowing that the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of who God is and who the Son of God is and what the Son of God has accomplished in the world, that message has to go out. But there are also battles within the church that we must stand upon the truth of who God is, declare it, obey it, and even fight for it at times, just not violently. Nehemiah models this for us. And ultimately we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate model of that. I love the story of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which the gospel writers remind us that as Jesus stands trial. No matter what his accusers say no matter what they accuse him of as, as a heretic, as a blasphemer, in the end, Jesus is ruled as innocent. The truth is declared about his own character by a pagan ruler in Pontius Pilate. Even though he is still killed, Jesus is remi- we are reminded that Jesus was innocent in every way. The truth reigned in that situation. God made sure that the truth would be declared, that Jesus Christ would be known as the sinless Son of God, that He never failed, that He fulfilled the law in every fulfilled the law in every way, and yet He had He had to die. He had to be the sacrifice. So he died unjustly, by the hands of unjust men, evil men, even as it was the plan of a sovereign God. And so as I think about those things, I I think about the way in which our church or the church as the world sees us must stand for truth in the midst of wickedness and evil. And we must fight that fight until our last dying breath because Satan will continue to attack. He will not relent until Jesus Christ returns. Therefore, our... Focus and our purpose must be to be faithful in obedience to what the Word of God says, fighting for the truth of the gospel. As Paul tells Timothy, it's a treasure that's been given to us. Literally, Paul calls it the good deposit, the most valuable thing that you've received. Years ago, before I was in, bank, or in, in ministry, I was in banking, and one of my jobs at one time was to take care of the safety deposit boxes, and it was amazing to see the good treasure of what people put in these little bitty boxes, just, just gobs of, of gold and jewelry, cash, and I was standing right there watching them put it in there, thinking, that's never going to last That will burn up if this building goes up in flames. But we have the good treasure, the good treasure of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ written down for us in the holy word of God. And we're called to to obey it, to declare it, to preserve it in the midst of spiritual war. So, in review, real quick the enemies of God seek to mock and discourage they spew hate and are violent they stir up fear they lie and deceive the people of God trust God's power and are hopeful they trust God's justice and they pray they're alert and resist the enemy's attacks and they stand for truth and they obey father we thank you for your word and the way in which it it brings this awareness to our minds and we pray As we look to a new year to come, Father, that we would stand firm upon the spiritual warfare that we face. God, we're not in this alone. You are with us. You empower us and strengthen us for the task. And you have given us your church, brothers and sisters alike who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, who have been empowered by his Holy Spirit, who also have the living word of God, So that we might together fight this fight. So Father, we pray that we would persevere during this wartime. Depending and trusting on you because you, our God, will fight for us. And we thank you for fighting for us in such a way that you sent Jesus. Who is our victor. Who is our king. We pray these things in his name. Amen.